0: Welcome to Queer Lodgings, the queer-led podcast about everything Tolkien. I'm Leah, and I'm here as ever with my co-hosts, Alicia and Grace. Hey! Hello! Thank you so much for joining us. Pull up a stool, grab a giant mug of tea, and get comfy as we dive into our second episode in our ongoing series we're calling Queer Readings. In our last episode, we discovered that it's clear that Galadriel is a complex, fluid, and queer icon and character who is not just the wise, timeless, and restrained woman we meet in Lothlorien. She is, in fact, far more interesting, complicated, and flawed than perhaps some people, including Tolkien himself, would have preferred her to end up being. In this episode, we're going to dive a little bit deeper into those flaws and her story over the ages. And to do that, I think it's worth following the threads, the similarities, and the crucial differences that connect Galadriel to another complex and controversial character of Tolkien's, and that's Feanor, the greatest of the Noldor and the creator of the Silmarils. And, can't get around it, the prime mover of the history of the elves in Middle-earth. After all, Tolkien himself makes that comparison. Quote, Galadriel was the greatest of the Noldor, except Feanor maybe. Though she was wiser than he, and her wisdom increased with the long years, much like Feanor is called the mightiest of the Noldor, Galadriel is called the mightiest and fairest of all the elves that remained in Middle Earth. So, to kind of get into this conversation, we're going to sort of move through some things about Galadriel, some things that are perhaps less mm, savory about her character, her her flaws. So. Let's start off with kind of the biggest and most glaring character flaw that Galadriel has. And I think it's a big one that connects her to Feanor and is, makes her very much a similar sort of character to him. And that's her pride, right? Yeah. There's a lot that Tolkien says about Galadriel's pride. In The Peoples of Middle-Earth, he says, She joined the rebellion against the Valar who commanded them to stay. And once she had set foot upon that road of exile, she would not relent, but rejected the last message of the Valar and came under the doom of Mandos. Her pride was unwilling to return even after everything happened in Middle-earth and the Valar lifted their ban. Her pride was unwilling to return a defeated suppliant for pardon. So I feel like this is a really great place to start kind of in our conversation about, about Feanor and Galadriel, because I think it's really clear that pride is a, a prime sin in Tolkien's world and Tolkien's world building. And a lot of the other sort of villainous characters in his world have this sin of pride. So I, I'm curious as to why, um, as to how, I guess, Galadriel ended up having this, this particular flaw.
1: I think you see it too when she comes to Middle Earth and is studying under Melian and mm. does so much concealing of the events that have occurred and holding back information, even as Melian is understanding that there is something that she is holding back. Uh, she's just incredibly prideful in that regard. It's something that she doesn't give herself over to the the mercy of, of her compatriots or whatever, that she she continues to try to direct the narrative and hold back information that may or may not be the right choice. And it certainly complicates matters. But the way that we tend to look at things is that, well, this is how things unfolded. We don't tend to have a lot of chance to examine what if Galadriel had made a different choice in some of these regards.
2: Mm. Yeah, I I think Galadriel is, I'm sure we're going to touch on this a little bit more later, but out of all of the characters that have this flaw of pride, she's the example of it becoming redeemed. She's not like Saruman. She's not like Feanor. She's not like Melkor. She's not like Celebrimbor. I mean, one, she's still alive. But, like, we're with her for so long, we actually get to see the resolution in that. And I think it's especially interesting because of how Galadriel came into being. She came into being as the resolved wise character. And then Tolkien wrote this complicated backstory for her. Right. It's interesting that he decided to start exploring that with the character who he introduced as being essentially like perfect.
1: And I think it's something that is all too easy for us as readers or viewers to forget is part of her backstory. Like we meet her in the third age, having made some decisions and learned some things about how to operate her life in the world around her to circumvent some of these flaws and to go back and, and look at her earliest pieces of her story, they're very clear and glaring, but a lot of times we as an audience don't remember that those things are there. Yeah. How much of that is just the timescale
2: involved, though? It's really hard for humans to think about, oh, well, this elf is actually 5,000 years old. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. yeah.
0: <laughs> I feel like in some of my thoughts about Galadriel, I sort of feel like she is the sort of character that is very much like Fëanor in that her pride is sort of where she begins but she gets a chance that Fëanor doesn't which is time right and time in Middle-earth in particular her wisdom grows with the ages and she sort of gets to she gets to have a character arc in a way that the prime mover again of all of the events that unfold in Middle-earth and The person responsible, basically, for a significant portion of the history of Middle Earth just doesn't get to do. And I guess that might be a symptom of being kind of a villainous character versus a protagonist. I think that this centering on pride is something that holds a really interesting key to a lot of what Tolkien thinks about his world and what he thinks about sort of the metaphysical structure of the world. I mean, it's pretty obvious. Tolkien says the Summerleans based on the Christian story of fall and redemption. And it's obviously it's different in that the elves don't die. They're not punished by death, like in the story of Genesis. He actually says something about how the elves fall in a lot of different ways in a few of the letters. And Tom Shippey actually explores a little bit more about this, which I think is really interesting. He says... The sin of the elves, you know, they seem to be much more susceptible to a specialized variety of pride that's not present in Genesis or Paradise Lost, but it's not quite avarice or possessiveness or wanting to own things, but it's rather a restless desire to make things which will forever reflect or incarnate their own personality. And I feel like this pride that is really about making something and creating something that will reflect the maker is something that Tolkien really, really thinks a lot about and expands a lot on in a lot of his other works. I feel like that that's a really kind of an important point to illustrating a key difference, which we'll kind of get into a little bit later between Feanor and Galadriel, which is that this desire to create and possess those things which you create is something that Galadriel doesn't have,
1: right? Almost like creating in service to a greater good instead of personal. Like in this regard, I think the Galadriel leans closer toward like Aule and Aule's uh, creation of the dwarves, and that not necessarily being a personal vanity project, but being very personally important. Uh, Whereas Feanor and the Silmarils, Celebrimbor and the rings are much more tangible objects. And so I think there's a differentiation there in in Tolkien's works.
2: I do think she ends up there. I don't know if I agree that she starts there. Because what propelled her out of Valinor, her own desire to set up her own realm, which can be taken a a couple of ways. But when it comes down to it, she wants to create a land that she is going to rule. It's not a tangible object, but is that not wanting to assert your personality in a way that could potentially
1: outlive you? Yeah, totally. absolutely. And I, I think if not for Feanor's actions and what Galadriel witnesses and is party to and, and is complicit in, in the first stage if not for all of that, I think it's very possible that we end up with a very different version of Galadriel and a very different version of Galadriel's leadership, quote unquote, in terms of establishing her own realm and ruling as a tyrant instead.
2: Yeah, we are talking around this a lot. And I think just to give context to people who maybe not are not as familiar with the Silmarillion, Galadriel essentially joins with Fëanor in his jeez how far back to go in this uh <laughs> excuse me Morgoth
0: comes over yes. steals start the with, Silmarils start with the creation of the world and then I know right
2: <laughs> yeah so Melkor steals the Silmarils from Fëanor and these are like his magnum opus like no one else can do this but him Um, they are stolen. His father is killed. He decides that he is going to avenge the death of his father and get the Silmarils back. Those two things are very entwined. So he gives a stirring speech and a bunch of elves decide they're going to go with him to Middle Earth to get these rocks back. And Galadriel is one of those elves and therefore falls under the Doom of Mandos. The Doom of Mandos happens because in trying to cross the ocean to get back to Middle-earth, Faenor murders a bunch of elves and tries to steal their ships. He does steal their ships. Some of his party go on the ship. Some of the party have to go up way far up north and um, cross the Helicaraxa, which is the grinding ice. Galadriel is one of the ones who had to endure the grinding ice and then come back. They meet all up together in Middle-earth and a bunch of other things happen.
0: A bunch <laughs> of other things happen. <laughs> yeah. That's the so early in, in a nutshell. A bunch of other things happen.
1: The reason that Galadriel decides to go on this fun adventure is because she wants to set up her own dominion and place to rule in Middle Earth and has this idea that this sort of like. Tara nullis idea that there it is empty land that she can set up a realm in, and it's a reason for her to go along. She doesn't swear the exact same oaths and vows as some of the others, and that's sort of Tolkien, I think, kind of protecting her from the the consequences as a result of having created her as this like perfect character who gets to to find redemption and peace and all of that, but the reasons why she decides to leave are um, kind of a, a villain arc that's being set up. And, and then that gets inverted
0: questionable at best. And I absolutely think that this flaw of pride leads us directly into kind of this, the second flaw, I guess, which is deeply related to it. Galadriel has a very deep desire to rule. She has a deep desire for power in unfinished tales and the the shibboleth of Feanor, it is said, Gladriel was born in the bliss of Eleanor, but it was not long before that was dimmed and she had no peace within. She had dreams of far lands and dominions that might be her own to order as she would without tutelage. I feel like her pride is the germ of desire for power for sure. And I feel like that that's another thing that makes people kind of uncomfortable about Galadriel and perhaps about a lot of other Noldor in that a lot of their motivations for coming over from Balinor to Middle-earth are colonizing motivations, right? They want to establish realms that they can rule over. There's another quote that Tolkien says in a letter that the elves that remained in Middle-earth wanted the peace and bliss and perfect memory of the West and yet to remain on the ordinary Earth where their prestige as the highest people above wild elves, dwarves, and men was greater than at the bottom of the hierarchy of Valinor. Like, a big reason why Galadriel joined the the host of Feanor was she wanted to rule something, and she, she knew that she wasn't going to get the chance to do that in Valinor.
1: Yeah. That bit that I was talking about, too, about that Galadriel didn't swear the same oaths but had this motivation... In The Flight of the Noldor and the Silmarillion, Tolkien writes, No oath she swore, but the words of Feanor concerning Middle-earth had kindled in her heart, for she yearned to see the wide and unguarded lands and to rule there a realm at her own will.
0: Yeah. She learned everything that, that she could in Valinor from the Valar, and she was kind of chafing. She was kind of champing at the bit to kind of show, show what she could do somewhere else. And unfortunately, that meant in some way it would kind of mean going somewhere else that was not her home and was not not among her own people.
1: I think that that's really, really key to understanding what a big fucking deal it is when Frodo offers her the ring freely when they're in the, in Lothlorien and she she goes into her her whole like In place of a dark lord, you will set up a queen. Like, even if you don't understand the context behind it, like that's a big moment and everything. But when you understand that this is the deepest desire that she has held for thousands of years, that's a massive, massive thing to have that background on. That's a real temptation, like
0: the deepest sort of temptation that that she can really be subjected to.
2: Yeah, and they tried to depict that with turning her into a swamp creature, <laughs> which is one of the small things that I have against
1: that adaptation. Listen, I can't be mad at it because Kate Blanchett is really fucking hot in that scene. So oh, I'm gonna say, I... my anger just
2: doesn't exist there. I'm too distracted. I do kind of like a nuclear Gladriel. I'm I'm <laughs>
0: kind of into it. <laughs>
2: I didn't mind it nearly as much until I watched the Hobbit movies. And then they pulled that out again. And I was like, come on Ooh. guys. <laughs> yeah. She
0: was yeah. a little bit more, I, I do kind of like the, the imagery of the uh, drowning, the drowned person in, in water, I guess. But yeah, it, it, it was a little, I was like, Oh, hmm, not nearly as hot as when you went nuclear.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's very, interesting that we are presented in the Lord of the Rings with this massive choice that Galadriel has to make and she makes that choice and just then just says I'm going to diminish and that's all we get from that at all like we get zero backstory
1: (laughs) yeah I have a soapbox to climb up on about that in a few (laughs) minutes we'll we'll circle
2: back put a pin in that
0: I guess but yeah that crux, that moment, is literally thousands of years in the making. After rejecting the pardon of the Valar, after saying, "Oh, I don't want to go back," after saying, "I don't care if you ban me from Valinor. I don't. I don't even wish to go back. I'm cool being here," she has this gift, basically, right in front of her, this opportunity to realize something that she has wanted for literally thousands of years, and literally kept her out of paradise i just feel like it's such an important moment and such an important deviation in her character from other other folks like feanor for instance and that she has this choice and she makes something fundamentally different from from what he did
2: like i am really curious as to when the switch actually happens with her like textually we get her We've also talked about the pardon of the Valor a couple of times here. That is at the end of the first age. It's when the Silmarils have been kind of distributed, which is the nicest way I can put say that. And Morgoth <laughs> is defeated, thrown out into the void. Um, at that point, all the elves who had fallen under the doom of Mandos are allowed to come back to Valinor if they so choose. Galadriel basically tells them to fuck off. She's going to do what she's going to do. And then we get her in the second age, When she's just, like, wandering around with her husband trying to find a place to set up shop, they set up shop in Aragion for a while, where they rule as lord and lady until they're deposed by Celebrimbor, and then they end up wandering around again some more and end up setting up shop in uh, Lothlorien, where they're no longer really considered royalty in the same way that they were in Eregion. Eregion is an Oldorian settlement, so the people who came over from Amon with Galadriel, whereas in uh, Lothlorien, Galadriel and Celeborn are ruling over a, um, as he, Tolkien described them earlier, a bunch of wild elves. They're elves that never went into Amon. So, like, Did the change happen between Eregion and Lothlorien or did it actually happen further into Lothlorien? Was it a quick change? Was it a slow change? At what point did she realize, oh, hey, I don't actually need to have absolute power, absolute dominion over my own
1: land? I think there's some evidence for for the groundwork, at least, being laid at the point in time when she is learning from Melian and Doriath, because... To go from wanting to set up her own land without any tutelage to actually being willing to learn some things, like that's that's one kernel starting to unlock, I think. And so I think there are multiple decision points along the way where she gets to build her wisdom instead of a singular turning point. But that's the benefit of having several thousand years to come around to that, which, uh, like we said, Fanor not. Not so much.
0: Yeah, I kind of wonder how much trauma might uh, help that that kernel grow. You know, for seed. Yeah. she experiences quite a lot of trauma in between Irigan and Welforian. Yeah,
1: yeah, a
0: lot. That might be a, a significant influence upon some of her some of her decisions a little bit later.
1: Yeah, and I think that those experiences end up tempering what her initial urges in her her earlier days might have been, which is a good thing, because definitionally and on the surface, even though a lot of things turn out pretty okay, there are some pretty deep and concerning issues with how Galadriel thinks about power initially, how she amasses power in the decisions, the way that she wields it even though things turn out pretty well. So this is me getting up on my soapbox, and we're going to talk a little bit about colonization. Because as Alicia pointed out, by the time Galadriel gets to Lothlorien, she is ruling over, she and Celebrorn are ruling over people that are not necessarily their like their same group of people. They were not necessarily chosen as leaders in the same way they're they're imposed as leaders they impose themselves as leaders and generally speaking when a, a small group of people come to a new place and then take over leadership and subject the people who were already there to their will and dominion that's called colonization <laughs> and there are two different major types of colonization and this is relevant to the Noldor too but there are settler colonies in which expansion of territory is the primary drive and objective so that kind of seems to be a lot a lot more of what the Noldor elves are doing or what they're after what Galadriel is after is finding this territory and all of that it's more about settling elsewhere than trying to rule other people, but that usually comes along with it. In almost every case, it involves ruling others. There's also exploitation colonies, which is where control, subjugation, and exploitation of resources are the aim. We see a lot more of that in Middle Earth with like Numenorean shipbuilding colonies and things like that. However, and this is key, uh, this is from a paper from Young in 2001, he points out that the inferiority mindset in regards to both types of colonial approaches is inherent in each. So there ends up being this stratification and social structure along with it. And I think we do see that, not to the degree that we might expect to see in the primary world, but we do see threads of that in Loth-Lorien. And This is a place where there's definitely room for critique because when Galadriel decides that she is going to support the destruction of the One Ring, which will take away the drive and power for the three elven rings that one of which she has used to stabilize or create this realm in Lothlorien, she makes that decision unilaterally. Yeah. She makes a decision for all of the people who are under her rule, that they are going to have to leave the place where they live. And as Alicia pointed out, these are elves who never went to Aman. These are elves who never tried to go to Valinor. And they are going to need to go to Valinor or die. And when they go to Valinor, they will be at the bottom of the social hierarchical structure. And in fact arguably are even lower in that social hierarchical structure than Galadriel was when she decided to leave Valinor because they are subjugated to her. Mm. And when we look to primary world examples of times when people have had to leave their homelands or die, we don't have a lot of really positive historical examples to draw upon. Like we have shadow slavery and uh, Reservation systems and, you know, manifest destiny and the exploitation of Africa and just so many primary world examples where the hallmarks back to this, the callback to this are very concerning. And even though Tolkien is on record as not being a fan of imperialism or, or what have you, there's a lot baked in here and a lot that is sort of uncritically baked in because... Because we understand that Galadriel does the right thing in the end.
2: Because she's a white savior. Yeah.
1: <laughs> like, yeah. I do
2: want to point out that the elves that she is ruling over are literally called the Moraquendi, they are the dark elves. Yep. Yeah. And she is referred to as the white lady. It's mm-hmm. very on the nose. Yeah. Yeah. It's
0: uncomfortable. So in kind of exploring some of this flaw of hers, this desire for power, I do kind of want to come back to another sort of motivation that doesn't apply to every version of Galadriel that we that we see. But I think it's kind of a fun sort of addition to her character in that some of her motivation for leaving Valinor in the first place was to stick it to Feanor. She and Feanor have kind of a fraught relationship they notably, famously, Theonor begged three times for a tress of her golden hair, but Galadriel would not even give him one. And it said, quoted from *People's of Middle Earth*: "These two kinsfolk, the greatest of the Eldor of Valinor, were unfriends forever." And I, I kind of love that this this seed of unfriendship is something that really drives Galadriel to follow Feanor into Middle-earth alongside her desire to create a domain of her own. There's a quote from the Shibboleth of Feanor where it says that she burned with desire to follow Feanor with her anger to whatever lands he might come and to thwart him in all ways that she could. So I kind of love this aspect of Galadriel, not going to (laughs) lie. I kind of love that she's just like this kind of like petty
2: ass bitch who's like oh, I'm <laughs> a petty queen. Just yes, the, the <laughs> fact that then she gave Gimli three of her hairs, yes!
1: and then
2: on top of that, Legolas brings Gimli over to Valinor, oh, presumably oh Gimli God. with his three golden hairs. Like yeah. at at some point Gimli's gonna die and end up in the halls of Mondos as well. And like I can only imagine him going up to Feanor and being like, fuck you, bro. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs>
0: Feanor! Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. I just I like I said I, I wanted to bring us back to this sort of element of of her in that I think that it really it kind of gives us an insight to a character who's perceived as, you know, sort of above a lot of different emotions and uh sort of reached kind of zen sort of pinnacle beyond sort of petty sort of relationship concerns. But I kind of love that in, in certain versions of her, as, as Tolkien sort of went and wrote and revised, that a big part of her really wanted to stick it to Fanor and get in his way and do everything that she could to stop him from fucking up the world. Well, and it happens
2: before Al as well. Like she has disliked Feanor since before he killed a bunch of her relatives. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And she is still salty about it in these final years of the third age when we are first introduced to her, because that is when she is giving Gimli gifts that she had spurned Feanor on this entire, you know, thousands of years. And there's a line, I think, in Shibboleth of Feanor that she withheld her goodwill from none save only Feanor. Oh, it's so good. It's so, uh, so petty in a... Just a, a really beautiful sort of way. Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. Like she, in that same quote, it says, In him she perceived a darkness that she hated and feared, though she did not perceive that the shadow of the same evil had fallen upon the minds of all the Noldor and upon her own. Yeah. I think that that speaks to something kind of deep in her. Like, there's a reason that she hates Feanor and it might have something to do with that she sees some of herself in him, perhaps.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: So I feel like this anger and this drive to thwart Feanor and take vengeance against him I think it adds a an interesting wrinkle to how she perceives herself and how she eventually grows out of that. Yeah.
1: I really enjoy that particular quote too, because it's an, an indication that the narrative itself is aware of her flaws. Like a lot of a lot of places, the things that are flaws or might be flaws that might cause harm, that harm is sidestepped because the choice that's made ends up being fortuitous, right? And, and not just in regards to Galadriel. Like Pippin makes a mistake and it turns out to be something that's very fortuitous, actually. Or, you know, there's different examples throughout the legendarium. And so, you know, some of the things that I I appreciate the pettiness of, like giving Gimli three gold hairs and what have you, there's no harm that comes from it. And so that that pettiness is sort of okay, but the narrative itself is aware that there is more to Galadriel than just perfection.
2: Yeah. And as much as we want to say that she grew out of it, did she fully grow out of it? Because it was the third age in which she was a petty bitch and gave (laughs) (laughs) away those three hairs.
0: (laughs) Maybe not growing out of it, but got some distance from it Yeah, and then decided you know, I'm still kind of mad about that and I'm going to do this to my, my one true love, Gimli.
1: So. We contain multitudes. And yeah. in the same way that my wonderful and very wise grandmother on the eve of her 90th birthday was still upset that her youngest sister had borrowed and ruined a blouse when they were teenagers. <laughs> uh, Galadriel <laughs> still mad at Feanor some thousands <laughs> of years later.
2: Oh my God. That's so funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, my grandfather when he was on his deathbed like pulled me aside to tell me that he was still angry at his parents for lying to him about Santa. Oh. <laughs> Which is I was like, my dude, they're all dead. <laughs> it's okay to let this they're go. All dead. And <laughs> <spends> years
1: and <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. And so while we like can't really conceptualize a, a lifetime that spans thousands Of years and just sort of a lifetime development model expanded from a a human scale to that scale it honestly some of it still makes sense
0: (laughs) completely well in our discussions about where she kind of is similar to feanor and honestly this is kind of a whole other rabbit hole that we don't need to go down to but kind of similar to both Sodomon and sauron who both wanted to be capital P powers in Middle-earth and kind of had their own agendas for doing so. That's another rabbit hole not, that we don't need to go down. but That's a whole other episode. That's a <laughs> whole other episode. But let's kind of turn from seeing where these flaws make her pretty similar to somebody like Feanor and look at what makes her different from Feanor. Because the differences between her and Feanor, I think, are the real keys to her character. So I think probably the most important thing where she differs from Vanor is that she ultimately rejects power. She ultimately rejects that desire to dominate and to rule. And I think that this is related to her deep reverence for the Valar and a willingness to eventually repent and be a penitent, I guess. So, there's a quote again from Unfinished Tales, the Shibboleth of Feanor. There dwelt in her the noble and generous spirit of the Vanyar, who are the elves who live in Amun, and a reverence for the Valar that she could not forget. And I think that that's something that she can't forget, even over the thousands of years that she spends in Middle-earth. Tolkien also talks a little bit about Galadriel as a penitent. He speaks in letter 320 at the end of the first age she proudly refused forgiveness or permission to return but she was pardoned because of her resistance to the final and overwhelming temptation to take the ring for herself that's really important that's something that i am pretty sure and i think there's a lot of evidence for it that something that feanor would not be able to do hmm. so the ban upon Galadriel, which is the thing that she earned this pardon from the Valor for, she sort of believed that this ban was perennial to be as long as Earth existed. She actually believes that there is kind of no chance for her to return to Valinor, but it turns out that that's not true. And she sort of earns quote, in reward for her services against Sauron and her rejection of the ring, she kind of earns the reward of that ban lifting from Valinor, and she is able to return. So I feel like that this is a an important key to her recognizing that she has this pride, and she kind of overcomes it, if that makes sense. Or she sort of, I don't know, she becomes repentant, I guess, of of her actions and
1: more able to navigate ar- around it too. Yeah, and I think one of the things that, just my personal opinion, I think we see a difference in bitterness and resentment where these two characters are concerned. So, they're both characters have the pride. Both characters stand to. Uh, to have consequences to their actions and Galadriel tends to be more accepting of those consequences and Feanor seems to tend to reject those potential consequences a bit more and so I think there's a little bit of a thesis there in the writing that responsibility for one's own actions and the consequences there is a more desirable approach.
0: Yeah and Getting kind of more into the weeds of Tolkien's sort of metaphysics and his theology, he places a primary importance on the act of repentance and the act of obedience, which I personally have a big problem with, but in the (laughs) same. But we'll kind of stay out of that for this discussion. Galadriel's repentance really comes about kind of as an acceptance of the consequences of her actions, and she sort of surrenders to what the Valar ask and she kind of returns to obedience and for Tolkien that's a really important point in her character and a really important sign of her essential goodness I think.
2: A slightly different take on this same thing as opposed to uh, categorizing it as obedience you could potentially categorize it as knowing what you're capable of sticking like to your station um, in the this is a real specific reference the liner notes from Donald Swan's The Road Goes Ever On which is it's essentially like a, a tiny Middle Earth opera he says that it was Galadriel's absolute refusal of any unlawful enhancement to her own powers is what allowed the ship to bear her mm. it's in the notes about the lament of Galadriel, the song that she sings to Frodo as they are leaving Lothlorien, And we also hear Galadriel say that she must diminish and remain Galadriel. So she is at that point saying that she is going to remain who she is. She's not trying to step beyond what she should be doing as the type of being she is. Whereas at first she is trying to Set herself up as a leader. And when you take into consideration Galadriel live in Valinor, to be a leader is to set yourself as equivalent to a, a Vala, essentially. So she has wow. that exact opportunity in the ring to seize the power of not a Vala, but of, you know, an Ainu. And she refuses that and remains an elf. Yeah. That's slightly less upsetting to me than couching it as just blind obedience. Agreed. <laughs> Big agree.
1: I think each argument is there, but I much prefer the latter takeaway.
0: Yeah. You can tell none of us are Christians, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah I, I I, have taken a couple of vows in my life and the obedience ones have been removed from every version of them. <laughs> <Right. laughs> yeah. But no, I think also in framing in terms of repentance and acknowledgement, accountability. I think that these are values that we could we can kind of all come along on that. When you mess up, you need to take accountability for it. You need to acknowledge it, and that repentance can't just be about being forgiven. It has to be about like actually taking responsibility. And I think. That instead of obedience, the agency and understanding and all of that as opposed to obedience is something that I'm a lot more enthusiastic about instead yeah. of some of the ways that Tolkien's work can genuinely be interpreted. Yeah.
0: I also think it's sort of like when you make an, a genuine apology, you, you take actions to repair and restore the harm that you have done. And I think that we can kind of see some of this with Galadriel's gift to Sam, with the Mallorn seed and the dirt from Lorien. Yes. So there's definitely some complicated, which I'm sh- I think we're gonna get into it.
1: <laughs> I also have a soapbox about Noldorian ecological imperialism and spreading Mallorn trees <laughs> yeah. and you know the soil from one place to another. But the there's an actual. Complexity there because there's also how those things are used for the restoration of the land, not just the the spreading of a dominion, and used for healing and and etc. So sometimes things can be both.
0: Yeah, like she gives it to Sam with kind of the knowledge that if Frodo succeeds in his quest, Lorien will fade away. There's not going to be any more land. That's the land of the elves, really. It's all going to be lost to time. And at the same time, she gives Sam this gift of kind of like, there may yet still be a memory of us that can grow somewhere else and provide something beautiful and green and and new in a different part of the world that is a memory and so it will eventually fade, but for a while it might still bring a lot of joy and and healing
2: you know, i hadn't really thought about how often elves do that until we just started talking about it because the white uh, tree of gondor came
1: from uh-huh.
2: numenor which came right. from amon
1: right uh-huh. and those malorn trees weren't indigenous to middle earth they also came through valinor to numenor to Linden, where they would not grow, and then to Lothlorien, I believe, is the trajectory.
2: Yeah, they came from Lorien in Amman to Lothlorien. To Lothlorien, Loth-Lorien. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yep. So ecological imperialism, what fun, but also <laughs> pretty <laughs> plants.
0: Yeah. When we kind of get down into the sort of nitty gritty of it, you're kind of like, oh, hold on. But as a symbol of Eicheladriel understanding that her time in Middle-earth is over, and that the time of the elves is over, As a symbol of her passing that seed, passing that torch, basically, to Sam. It's a pretty potent one.
1: I think the sharing of plants and and gifting of plants are certainly something that can be a really beautiful gesture. Because certainly not every plant in my garden is indigenous to the area where I live, I have brought cuttings of plants that are five, six decades old that various family members have had, and I continue to grow those in my garden. There's a lot of really beautiful things that can happen. But at the point where a species takes over and becomes an invasive species, we end up with ecological problems. And what it is really interesting to consider about Lothlorien is that this beautiful dominion that Galadriel um, helps to create and foster and preserve is an artificial construct with non-native plant species that are sort of a, a, almost a monoculture mm-hmm. there. And that in some ways there's an argument that the elves leaving Lothlorien and that fading away is actually the, the land healing as well
2: rewilding yeah yeah one of the things we haven't really touched on much at all is that galadriel has foresight so when she gives that gift to sam she knows she knows that the shire is going to probably be destroyed whether how it's going to happen i I do believe that she has probably foreseen that and seen the need for that gift to restore what saruman destroys
1: Mm-hmm. I think it's particularly key in that that she gives the soil as well mm-hmm. as the seed like that. That's a really good indicator to me of knowing that the the land itself, like the actual soil has been damaged in the Shire and will need to be rehabilitated or is going to be damaged and will need this ecological rehabilitation.
0: Yeah, I really think that this desire to to heal the hurts that she has sort of participated in and that she takes responsibility for and this sort of growing to understand that her legacy is one that will necessarily fade with the earth which is sort of the fate of all elves in Middle-earth and that they're intimately connected to it and they don't really know what's going to happen at the end days even though they you know, the elves in, in Valinor certainly sort of know that an end day will come for it. I feel like that this this giving up of a a legacy that will last like the Silmarils or perhaps even some like the rings or something, she knows that in giving up this possibility of something of hers enduring in Middle-earth really reveals something kind of like what Alicia was saying, that... She she knows that she wants to be in herself fully, and she kind of knows that, like, all things fade, all things pass, and all things, all things die kind of in their way, even as an immortal elf. And I think that that speaks really highly to a lot of the wisdom that she's sort of accumulated over the years and the the fading and the death that she's seen over the years. And, again, that's something that Feyenoord never, never had the chance to see. Yeah. But I think that that's I don't think that that kind of wisdom would be something that he could ever really gain. I don't think that that's something that he could ever really see occurring around him.
1: I think there's also like looking at it from a little bit of a loyalist perspective. So there are two ways of looking at a a fictional work in this construct, right? There's the there's a loyalist way, which is what the author or the creative minds behind it. Are influenced by and then there's a watsonian explanation for things which is the the in universe in character textual explanations and and you can kind of go back and forth between those but for a Doyleist perspective galadriel is a character that tolkien is continuing to write and refine the story of throughout his life feanor not to the same degree some of that is already set in the stories that he'd written earlier certainly edits and amendments and all of that but I don't think that we can ignore the fact that Tolkien's rewriting of characters like Galadriel and Celeborn or writing about the nature of the orcs and everything is situated historically during the era of decolonization Mm. which there's a quote of from Almakar Cabral. He argued that decolonization was a driving force of progress for humanity and undoubtedly constitutes one of the essential characteristics of contemporary history. And I think the context that to, the changing context that Tolkien is writing in, whether he's digging deeply into these concepts or not, those cultural shifts I think make little appearances in the ways that, that characters are written over time in the legendarium
2: mm. yeah definitely y- you mentioned Leah that about Feanor creating things and I think Tolkien sees creation and subcreation as reaching outside of your station in a way mm. Mm. I've talked about this. Oh, I oh, I just generally talk about this a lot. Not that you have guys have any context. I, I'm a creative, and I've always really um, aligned in a way with Feanor and Celebrimbor and other characters like that. That I probably shouldn't, um, <laughs> because like Tolkien writes the act of creation as being so perilous, and I think a lot of that comes back to Tolkien. One his actual writing of Middle Earth was perilous to his day job, as it were, being a professor. But also, I feel like Tolkien viewed subcreation in particular as being kind of perilous because it's kind of a mini playing god. Yeah. And he he writes that into a lot of his uh, creative characters. And, and we're focusing on Feanor here. Galadriel doesn't do that. She's not a part of this pathology of Tolkien being terrified of what it is he does. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's interesting because all of Tolkien's creators are all men. And Galadriel Mm. is uh, held up as being kind of this prototypical woman. We talked about it in the last uh, Queer Readings episode where we're talking about how she's a peace weaver how she aligns with all these like very feminine things from the middle ages she's not actually uh, associated with creating things right she doesn't even like create life on screen which is something yeah. you would think would happen for a woman like a uh, calabrian is born at some point we don't even know when yeah <laughs> yeah she is associated with nurturing, which is definitely like a traditional feminine thing, but not necessarily with creating, whereas a character like Feanor is definitely aligned with creating and not at all with nurturing. That's a very interesting split that Tolkien's doing. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I feel like Tolkien's issues with subcreation creation and Tolkien's sort of Wrestling with being an artist is a, probably a whole other episode that <laughs> I would I I think that we need to do because I like I I'm also a creative and I'm like I I went to art school and flamed out but yeah like I feel like with Galadriel like even like the communities and the kingdoms that she comes in and comes to rule she doesn't really even like create them as such she kind of comes in and nurtures them and expands them and sort of helps them grow and thrive. But she doesn't really, she's not really a creative in the sense of the artist that Tolkien, typically the role that he typically gives to men and that he typically gives a pretty nasty end to. And again, we could probably unpack a lot of that of like (laughs) how Tolkien feels about that because I'm kind of like, dude, like, (laughs) It's okay.
2: <laughs> well, and Galadriel is entwined with two of those characters. She's very heavily entwined with Wert. She's also pretty heavily entwined with Kelly Brimbor, which exactly. is not something we really yeah. talk about. Kelle Brimbor was trying to get in there, in exactly. some versions of his story. Yeah, <laughs> and obviously, in all versions, he ends up giving her the ring. So, like, she's yeah. adjacent to this kind of destructive impulse, but isn't pulled under by it.
1: Well, and like he. Creates the, well, in one of the versions, Celebrimbor uh, creates the uh, like second version of the Lsr at her behest and everything. She's the driving force behind a lot of things, but not the hands that actually craft them.
0: Yeah. There's a really good quote that I wanted to kind of bring in from Tolkien, from one of his letters, kind of talking about art and the creative. He says that, like, it may become possessive, Clinging to the thing made as its own, the subcreator wishes to be the Lord and God of his private creation. He will rebel against the laws of the Creator and especially against mortality. And I feel like he directly compares that the elves are like the the prime example of subcreation in in his world, and they are still subject to this sort of again this rebellion and this sort of evil that he that he sees that can potentially occur as a creator. A creator can kind of fall to his own devices, basically. He sort of says in the same letter, "Their, their fall is into possessiveness and into perversion of their art into power. And we can definitely see how Feanor falls into possessiveness and we can see how Celebrimbor's The Three Rings, they have the potential to be perverted into power. And I feel like because Galadriel doesn't really participate in sub-creation in this way that she sort of gets exempt from some of that greed and that possessiveness, that, is, that could be potentially the potential risk that a lot of elves can fall into.
2: Yeah, I think that's a great point. We've talked about power a fair amount, but we haven't really talked about greed. And those two things are like it's so intertwined. Like, Galadriel wanted power, but she wasn't greedy for it in the same way that other characters, such as Sauron, obviously were.
0: Yeah, yeah. whenever she is in a position of power, she shares it. Like, she calls together the White Council. She is only one of three holders of a a ring of power.
2: She introduces her husband as if he weren't a useless piece exactly. of shit. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. She no she demur- so demurs to him. She she demurs to 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 Gandalf and um she desires power, but she doesn't desire sort of soul power, I guess, in in ways that other other characters certainly do.
1: She's definitely not threatened by sharing and trading power. In the mm-hmm. way that that a, a lot of other characters and villainous characters in Middle Earth are, and like I, I would argue that Elrond is a fairly similar example of that of another character who who looks to share power and build and his creations and everything like that are more about preserving history and knowledge and space for people and and all of that. I tend to think that Elrond and Galadriel are are written much more similarly to each other than a lot of other characters are. They're not quite foils for each other, but, you know, trod similar paths.
0: Totally. The the places that they quote-unquote rule, they're havens, they're refuge, you know, they're places of refuge and healing and restoration.
1: And they're both characters that embody some of the different gendered norms that Tolkien writes about and, and embody more than one set of norms within the same character. But the non-toxic versions of you know masculine norms and all of that, you know, non-toxic masculinity and all.
2: Oh so. okay. yeah, I I can't wait to have an episode about non-toxic masculinity and Tolkien. <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: gonna be amazing. <laughs> and, we to see, and for the our queer reading of Elrond. That'll be another another great episode, I think.
2: Yeah, I I do wonder because Galadriel and Elrond are written so similarly and they seem to have the same goals of like nurturing and preserving things, how much of that is tied to the rings and like how Mm -hmm. Tolkien saw the elven rings working Because like you think about the third person who has a ring before Gandalf has it is yeah, who also literally runs the Grey Havens. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah and who gives up the power of that ring pretty readily without being forced to do so or dying or you know yeah yeah he's just like hey gandalf you're going to need this here yeah
0: gandalf <laughs> like rolls off the boat and he's like here i have a gift for you and coming back to the the three elven rings i do think that their power is of of preservation and of keeping whole and keeping and restoring portions of Middle-earth, I guess, keeping them sort of like as as memories of the elves. And when the One Ring is destroyed, all the holders of the rings understand that those powers are gone and those, those realms will fade and Elrond and Galadriel leave. I feel like that's obviously a theme that Tolkien expands upon to great effect in a lot of his writing. But And kind of coming back to our discussion about, like, being creative and sub-creation, basically, I feel like one way that Galadriel sort of understands something that some of these other creatives don't is that, as Tolkien says in that same letter of 131, the doom of the elves is to be immortal, to love the beauty of the world, to bring it into full flower with their gifts of delicacy and perfection, to last while it lasts. And yet, when men come to teach them and make way for them to fade as they grow and absorb the life from which both proceed, Galadriel understands that the time of the elves is over. She understands that the time of men has come, when she leaves the shores of Middle-earth. And that's sort of a, an interesting place for her to land after her very, very long journey from Valinor in wanting to have a dominion of her own and have a place to show off her great talent and a place to, to do as she wants to. Coming to this sort of understanding that everything that she has, has done is going to fade and is is not going to last and that it's going to be potentially forgotten in the time of men is both incredibly mature and also kind of incredibly sad especially if you contrast it with some of these other creators who have these objects that are you know sort of enduring and eternal like the silmarils even as they're distributed across creation they haven't been destroyed they're still there but Everything that Galadriel has done is going to become undone. And I find that incredibly kind of moving and sort of um, kind of Zen in a way, kind of a Buddhist sort of understanding of life is emptiness and all things fade. And I also find it
2: incredibly sad. That's something that I think
0: about with Galadriel a lot.
2: It's interesting with Galadriel because you you mentioned that one of the jobs of the elves or the get men ready to rule in their time and galadriel does that she's directly and indirectly as mentoring aragorn and in some ways galadriel does live on but lives on in you know a kind of prosaic like human way like her bloodline lives on in aragorn's bloodline like they one, she has helped groom him into being a leader and a great leader of men, but also she has contributed DNA to the situation, right? So it, it's yeah, it's a it's a very I had kids kind of thing to write, really. Uh-huh. <laughs> like I, I am uh-huh. going to live on <laughs> in the future, but I'm going to live on like not a hundred percent. Like I'm not she doesn't live on in the same way as Silmaril lives on and the beauty that uh, Feanor first captured and that Silmaril is always there and it's always exactly how he left it. It's not like that, but it very much is. She endures, probably not forever because at some point that bloodline is going to fail. But <laughs> Yeah, her legacy is
0: mortal. It's kind of a weird, a weird paradox for an immortal being, I think. And again, you know, kind of touching back on something i mentioned earlier the elves know that well they're immortal but it's immortal in kind of quotations they kind of know that the world is going to end one day and they don't know what's going to happen to them
2: at that point that's a really weird thing that tolkien wrote like the difference between elves and men spiritually is that Elves' spirits and bodies are, are tied together and can't be separated, and men's spirits and bodies can be separated. So, when men die, their spirit goes elsewhere, but their bodies stay in Arda. And when right. elves die, they don't like die in the same way. They end up going to the halls of Mandos, which is still technically Arda, and then they kind of not necessarily reincarnate, but essentially start living again but just in the halls and eventually they get out into Amman. So they they never escape even in death. They're still tied to the earth.
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: Until the earth ends.
0: <laughs> yeah. Until the earth ends. And obviously they don't really know when that's going to happen but with living, especially the elves in Valinor, they know by being in contact with Gods basically, they know that it's going to happen at some point, and the thing is, they don't know what's going to happen after that. And I feel like I don't know. I feel like there's like kind of a connection to be made with mortal legacy that Galadriel leaves um, with her, nurturing the relationships that she did with the mortals in in Middle Earth. That legacy is fleeting, but it may yet still endure in a way that even she kind of can't understand or any of the elves can really understand. At least not yet. So in wrapping up this kind of discussion, I guess I want to say that where Feanor and some of these other sub in Tolkien pour them, themselves, uh, sometimes literally in Sauron's case, basically, into the objects of their art. And they have you know these objects as their legacy Galadriel's legacy is one that will fade but importantly it's a legacy that she chooses freely and with eyes wide open and as you know she says she will remain Galadriel
2: and she got to sail off into the sunset with Gandalf that's the dream (laughs) that is the dream
0: (laughs) any other thoughts from you guys I don't know if there are any other like loose threads that you guys wanted to wanted to go on or
1: okay it's not relevant we're gonna <laughs> probably end up cutting this but I cannot get it out of my head right now that the point in time when Galadriel gifts the LSR to Aragorn thus you know approving of his impending marriage to Arwen as this is a cultural tradition that you know the like elven parents give gifts to everyone is the same time that she is giving gifts to literally everybody including like three gold hairs to Gimli and everything so I think she's just over here matchmaking and approving of every shit throughout all of the fellowship
0: (laughs) she's just blessing all of them with like wedding gifts at the same time all of
1: those unions
0: (laughs) oh my god she went on a shopping spree at Costco. She's like, "I'm going to get everybody done in one go.
2: I'm not going to go to any of all of your weddings."
1: I'm helping. I'm helping.
2: I'm helping. I was just thinking about like in Valinor how convoluted that poly relationship is between her and Gandalf, and Gimli and Legolas, and eventually Kelleborn, <laughs> Whenever, whenever the hell he gets over there, yeah, we we assume also Celeborn at some point. Yeah, at some point.
0: Uh, Yeah, a lot of
2: negotiating
0: going
1: on there. (laughs) A lot of conversation.
0: A lot of conversation. (laughs) (laughs) So that brings us to the end of our episode and the end of both of our episodes on Galadriel. I'm sure that we're going to be continuing to talk about her a lot as things come up. But for now, thank you guys so much for joining us. You can find us on Apple. Google, Spotify, or stream direct episodes directly on Zencaster, which is at Zencaster.com, Queer Lodgings, a Token Podcast, with dashes all in between those words. Please like, share, subscribe, leave us a rating on your preferred podcast apps. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com/slash queerlodgings, Twitter, or now, uh, at queer underscore lodgings or you can email us at QueerLodgingsPodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, guys. Bye. 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 Well, that brings us to the end of our episode, I think. Yeah?
1: I think you are correct. Yes. Okay. (laughs)
2: I'll, I'll,
0: I'll That's say it great
1: with the communicating. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. <it> was, <laughs> very great. I was in my like Galadriel Gandalf little like rabbit <laughs> hole <laughs> there for a second. You Sorry.
0: <laughs> no, no, no. It's, 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 this, this is again. This is a problem for editing, Tim. <laughs>